Hello, everyone. This is Eva Norlick-Smith with Yoga U Online, and I'm here today with physical therapist and yoga therapist, Malisa Sullivan. Malisa is a faculty member in the Yoga Therapy Master's Program at Maryland University of Integrative Health in the Washington, D.C. area. And she is really a pioneer in the integration of the knowledge of yoga with the current scientific understandings of body and mind. Malisa's yoga background includes extensive studies with Yoganand Michael Carroll, who is the founder of Pranakriya Yoga and now the director of yoga teacher training at Kripalu Center. Malisa works continually in developing the therapeutic applications of yoga, both in her own teaching and practice, as well as an active participant in several research studies on yoga. And she's one of the rare people who is both an expert yoga teacher and also an expert at advancing our understanding of how the practice of yoga interfaces with our deeper understanding of mind-body medicine and the advancement of health and well-being. Welcome, Malisa. So great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. One of the things that you have always pointed out, and I'm sure your work as a physical therapist and a yoga teacher brings this home to you all the time, but you have noted how most yoga students come to yoga with musculoskeletal imbalances. Could you explain to us what you mean by that and how that can affect a person's yoga practice? In the field of physical therapy, there are different models for understanding how people show up. And what has been found over time is that when people have any kind of pain or injury, that there are certain places in their body where the muscles tend to shut off or turn off. And then because of that, there's other places, or in addition to that, there's other places that get really facilitated or tight. So when you're looking at people that come to yoga class, and a lot of people come to yoga to be healthier or to take care of their back or their hips or whatever part of their body. And a lot of people have, because of injury, because of pain, or because of not really being taught how to move, they have certain muscles that tend to be turned off or inhibited and certain muscles that tend to be over-engaging or facilitated and even tight or even short. And so like for the low back, a lot of what has been found is that the transverse abdominal muscles that are um, the deepest layer of abdominal muscles tend to shut off. So because of that, you end up not having a stable low back as you move, like a stable lumbar spine. So you end up moving unevenly in your joints and your body. Other muscles get really tight, and so it leads to imbalance. So if you come into a regular yoga class with those imbalances and you're expected to move into warriors and downward-facing dogs, but you don't have that stability of your body, then you're just going to perpetuate patterns of imbalance. You said that the deepest abdominal muscle tends to shut off. I presume you're referring to the transverse abdominus, that's that cummerbund muscle at the deepest level of the abdominal core? Yes. And why would that be? I think it's counterintuitive that a muscle would tend to shut off because a muscle is a muscle, right? The reason why I have never seen people be able to answer why, probably because we don't tend to see people before they're in pain. 
but it's kind of like when people have knee surgery, their quadriceps often shut off. So a lot of times they have to use electrical stimulation to get the quadriceps to re-engage. Part of the theory I've heard about that has been like when you hurt a part of your body, like your knee, if you were to hit your knee on something really hard, the quadricep kind of shuts off so that you won't use your knee because it's trying to protect it. So that in acute injury that maybe sometimes the muscle does that because it's trying to get you to not use the area so much. But then in chronic injury, once it has lasted over time, it just doesn't naturally come back on. Interesting. This phenomenon where we don't necessarily use all the muscles available to us, is that also perhaps something that has been created by our very sedentary society? It could be, especially because muscles can get very fatigued in sitting for long times or prolonged positions, like sitting at a desk for three or four hours at a time, which doesn't really allow our muscles to engage most optimally. So when we go from being very sedentary to trying to move, we haven't really allowed our muscles to have the right stimulus to help stabilize our body so that we can move most efficiently and effectively. Yeah. So you already discussed, you know, the transverse abdominis as one factor and that lack of core stability that comes with the inability to engage that in our movement. Are there any other common musculoskeletal imbalances that you think often affect yoga students? Especially with low back and hips, the other common ones are the gluteus maximus and gluteus medius, and that they often also don't engage optimally or the right amount. So that creates less stability, again, in our hips. So we tend to have these unstable parts in our lumbar spine and in our hips. So learning how to engage the glutes, like not clenching the glutes, but engaging them in a way that helps to stabilize so that you can move more effectively is important. Interesting. It's a really interesting thought because we're used to think about lack of flexibility and how that affects us in our yoga practice. Certainly most well-known is hamstrings. Of hamstring flexibility spills in to many, many different yoga postures, but you are saying that even just the inability to engage a muscle is something that plays a, a role in our practice. Yeah, if you think about the lack of flexibility in hamstring muscles, the hamstrings and the glutes both work to extend the hip. So the glute muscle is this really powerful muscle that's supposed to be used every time we walk when we extend our leg behind us. But if our glutes aren't working properly, then our hamstrings are going to be working too much. So you can stretch your hamstring every day and stretch and stretch and stretch them, but if every time you walk you're overusing them, they're not going to stretch, they're going to get tight. So if you think about, like, how do you most optimally stretch your hamstring, one is by taking away that overuse factor. So by strengthening the glutes and learning how to use the glutes in asana, in yoga practice, it helps you to learn how to use the glutes in your everyday life. So then you begin to lessen the overstimulation of the hamstrings, and then you can actually stretch them more effectively. So if you were just trying to stretch them but you never retrained your glutes, they would never actually get that flexible because they would constantly have the stimulation to work, which would create tightness. Very interesting. Now, you talked about the origin of musculoskeletal imbalances as often being 
due to injury or simply lack of use and you know, a lack of awareness of, for example, how to walk properly. Are there cases where there's also like a psychological or emotional component? Yeah, what's really interesting is one of the people's work that I draw a lot on is a physical therapist who is named Vladimir Yanda. And in his work, he researched a lot of what are the causes. Like your original question is, why are these the muscles that always shut down? And what he found is that it was very similar to people with neurological dysfunction. So if we think about our nervous system and how if we're constantly in a very sympathetic fight-or-flight response, our muscles are going to be triggered in that fight-or-flight response. If we're psychologically and emotionally in a very fight-or-flight space, like we're always in that sympathetic response, we're going to have certain muscles that are always being triggered to be engaged and turned on, which then makes other muscles turn off. So if you think about the psoas muscle, the big hip flexor on the front of the hip, which is very much related to our sympathetic response, if you're in a lot of fear or a lot of sympathetic response, that muscle is going to get really active, which is going to turn the opposite muscle, the glute max, off. So part of the reason for the glute max not working properly can be this opposite muscle facilitation of the psoas. So similar to what I said with the hamstring and walking, if you're constantly in a sympathetic state and you're trying to stretch your psoas and your hip flexors, they're never actually going to have much effect. You're not going to get very far. And it's really by relaxing the nervous system, coming into a parasympathetic state and learning how to be in that parasympathetic state that we can relax the psoas and engage the glutes. So even being able to be mindful and aware of how to release and how to engage has to happen from that shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So one of the things that yoga looks at, which is very unique and different than other forms of exercise, is that it's looking at part of the cause of that activation of parts of the body is the state of the mind. So that if I'm very anxious or if I get very anxious in response to stimulus, that's going to affect how my muscles are working in my body. So we can use that more meditative and mindful aspect of yoga to look at how to create a calm space and how to change our reaction to our emotions and our thoughts so that we change where the nervous system is and change the firing patterns of muscles. You work a lot in chronic pain and yoga. Is this connected to the chronic pain phenomenon that chronic pain is one step further in these imbalances in the body? Definitely. Like with chronic pain, it goes that step further to the whole nervous system being overly sensitized and the threshold for activation being lower so that any amount of stress or any amount of anxiety, instead of just revving us up a little bit, revs us up to all the way at 100%. And then even in chronic pain, our whole brain changes as far as our internal maps of our body and how we become aware of our body. So chronic pain is even a more move into that direction. Interesting. So in a sense, learning about these musculoskeletal imbalances and trying to understand them in your own body might be helpful in terms of preventing back pain or other musculoskeletal issues down the road. Yeah, because if you learn how to move your body most effectively, meaning how to stabilize one part of your body as you try to stretch another part of your body, you're not going to create strain. So even like I was talking about the psoas and the transverse abdominals before, 
if you try to stretch your psoas but you don't stabilize your lumbar spine, people can easily end up just extending through their lumbar spine and compressing their back. But if you learn how to stabilize your lumbar spine with the correct engagement of the abdominals and then stretch the hip flexors from there, then you'll actually get the stretch where you want it. So part of stabilizing the body and learning how to engage properly allows you to bring the stretch where you want it, the strengthening where you want it, in order to move in yoga without creating injury. Let's break that down into sort of an actual pose and how you would instruct that in a way that is different in order to address these musculoskeletal issues. Usually with the psoas and the abdominals, the easiest one is warrior one, which I always teach as crescent warrior, like with the back heel up. And that way you can work with both hips facing forward, so you're just working with one plane of movement, which is less complicated for the body. So mm-hmm. in a posture like that, if you're in that crescent warrior position, and if you were to just extend that back leg behind you, say the right leg was behind you, and you were just to extend that right leg behind you as much as you can and come into this big back bend, it's easy just to feel it right in your low back where you're most mobile, like that L3, L4, L5 area. But if before you come into it, you bend your back knee, you use the abdominal muscles to create a neutral spine, or just like drawing the tailbone a little bit underneath you. I usually will teach people to engage the abdominals by drawing their pubic bone up towards their sternum and their low ribs in, so that the abdominal engagement helps them to create a little bit more length in their low back. And then keeping that stability, reach the right heel out behind you, extending that heel behind you, stretching into the front of the right hip. So the cues are to first get the abdominal stability before you extend the leg behind you and before you come up into the back bend. Yeah, it's interesting. What you're touching on there with that instruction is, I think, what a lot of teachers observe in their classes, which is that in many, many postures, even in Tadasana, if you tell people to open the chest immediately, you know, the low back starts overarching and the ribs jot out. And so is that another example of a common musculoskeletal imbalance or is it just a movement pattern where if we try to move one part, then if that part isn't open, it gets invariably compensated in a different part? Yeah, exactly. It's the same example of like when you're in Tadasana, if you lift your arms overhead and you try to like really reach or stand up really tall, if you're tighter in the upper body, then you're going to get the movement in the lumbar spine because that's such a mobile part of our body. So teaching people how to get the movement through the whole body instead of the lumbar spine is really important. And you do that by setting the abdominal muscles. If you think of any muscle, a muscle can engage from 0% to 100%. And when we're Mm -hmm. talking about engaging the abdominals for stability, it's engaging the muscles like at 20-30%. If you were to engage your abdominals at 100%, it would also feel compressive. It's learning that like we don't, when we engage, we don't have to turn all the way on. There's a way of engaging our abdominal muscles that all it does is lengthen our back and transfer the motion evenly through our spine. Yeah, and then that particular point is so interesting because one of the big discussions in yoga about alignment is always the question of whether to talk or not to talk. And I think there is a general understanding that you don't want to tuck the tailbone in the sense of bringing the pelvis into posterior tilt. But many people also disavow the instruction 
lengthen the tailbone, make your tailbone heavy, which at least in my understanding refers to that beautiful point you just made about engaging the muscles 20-30% so you get that low abdominal region activated. But I think that's the goal of the lengthen the tailbone or making the tailbone heavy is to lengthen the low back without coming into a posterior tilt. Right. As soon as you even just imagine that lengthening, it does engage the lower abdominals. I don't know if it's the transverse or the lower rectus abdominis or both of them that is engaged in that situation. Yeah, and it's probably a little bit of both of them because you are drawing the tailbone a little bit under you. But when we're engaging a muscle, we aren't usually just engaging one. So even though, you know, I'm talking about the transverse abdominals and the obliques, the rectus is probably engaging a little bit. But as long as you're doing it at that more 20%. So even the discussion of to tuck your tailbone or not to tuck your tailbone is an interesting discussion. And what's really important to consider is neutral pelvis if you were to take your hands on your hips and to tuck your tailbone all the way and come into a posterior tilt and then to stick your tailbone all the way out behind you to come into an anterior tilt, the middle position is neutral. And when you're in that neutral position, you can find the natural curve of your spine. And some of us have more of a natural curve than other. And it's really that curve that you're trying to maintain in something like Tadasana. So if you were to find that curve and to only engage your abdominals as much as you needed to to maintain that curve, you would be allowing your tailbone to draw down just as much as you need to without tucking. Yeah, it's a very interesting discussion. So the musculoskeletal imbalance is too much of a generalization to say that these common musculoskeletal imbalances that we tend to have also relate to the common compensation patterns that we see when it comes to alignment in yoga postures? Yeah, and you know, and I think that you also alluded to something interesting earlier about to talk about alignment to not, and I think that where we get into trouble with that is not everyone has the same structure, so that you have to be really aware of not to tell everyone's toes to point exactly the same way because people have different structure. But we all have these muscles. And so when you speak to this muscular engagement, you're speaking to something that everyone has. Because of that, when you see these compensations, for example, what what we've been talking about is this hyperextension of the low back in Tadasana or in Warrior One. That's related to often this weakness of the abdominals and the glutes that people come to classes with. So that a lot of the imbalances we see Some of them can be structural, but a lot of times they're about the inability of the transverse abdominals and the glutes to stabilize and the increased engagement or tightness of the psoas and the hamstrings. Interesting. Now, we talked a lot about musculoskeletal imbalances as they apply to the lower body, but what about the upper body, neck, shoulders, thoracic spine? What are some of the common things that you observe there? The common imbalances that you tend to see in the upper body have to do with mostly the scapular muscles and the ability for the shoulder blade to move in relationship to the humerus, the arm, and the right rhythm of motion. So there's muscles that we'll be talking about, like the serratus anterior and the rhomboids and the middle and lower traps, and those muscles tend to be weaker or inhibited. 
while other muscles like the upper trapezius and our neck muscles tend to get really tight. So when our neck muscles like our upper traps get really tight and facilitated and short, our other scapular muscles can't work properly, so then we end up with a lot of potential neck and shoulder injuries. Interesting. And what visually, if the trap muscles are tight, is that sort of like shoulders slightly elevated? How does that show up? They can show up a lot of ways. When the upper traps are tight, it can be like elevated shoulders and even into the pecs, like rounded shoulders. But you also end up seeing people who have a lot of stress and tension, like jaw clenching or reverse breathing, where when they breathe in through their chest, they use their neck muscles to help them breathe. So if you're using your neck muscles to breathe, if you're holding your jaw really tight, these muscles are going to get really tight. Very interesting. So how does that translate into, you know, so many yoga postures involve having the arms overhead or standing on your arms, handstand, or, you know, any kind of pose that involves raising the arms into flexion overhead. How does that then translate if muscle imbalances are present? So when we have these imbalances, like weakness of the serratus or the rhomboids or the middle and lower traps and the tightness of the upper traps and the pecs, what happens is as we lift our arms overhead, the shoulder blade and the humerus don't move in the right ratio with one another, which can create a lot of compression in things like the rotator cuff or the shoulder bursa or even compression in the shoulder joint itself. So people can have pain or it's often called impingement of the arm as they lift their arm overhead. Very interesting. Is this something that predisposed people for certain specific shoulder problems when they didn't come into their, their yoga practice? These imbalances and what's interesting about looking at the body from this perspective is it really helps us move away from a protocol-driven yoga therapy and an individualized yoga therapy, meaning that there's some ratio of these imbalances that are commonly seen, and they're seen in anything. So whether it's rotator cuff tendonitis or small rotator cuff tear or bursitis or biceps tendonitis, or shoulder pain, or osteoarthritis of the shoulder, or disc herniations of the neck, that usually there's some combination of these imbalances that are present. And then they show up as pain or decreased mobility when you lift your arms overhead, pain with things like chaturanga or cobra, and those kind of postures. Now, why chaturanga? I could see that... There would be an issue when the range of motion is challenged, but chaturanga is more challenging the strength of the arm, so why would it translate into pain in chaturanga? So if the serratus anterior muscle as well as the rhomboids are not holding the shoulder blade really steady on the rib cage, and they're not helping to hold the humerus in the right position in the socket, then you're going to get winging of the shoulder blades away from the rib cage even an anterior tilt to the shoulder blade, you'll end up getting internal rotation and that really rounded shoulder position that we don't want to see in chaturanga. So it's through the correct strength of these muscles that you do chaturanga correctly. So if you go into practice with these musculoskeletal imbalances present, when you're doing things like chaturanga and cobra and locust, 
you're often doing them in a way with very rounded forward shoulders and no support from the core of the shoulder, no support from the shoulder blade muscles. So it, it can actually create impingement and rotator cuff issues. Very interesting. And what about the forward slumping of the thoracic spine that gets increasingly common as people get older? Is that a separate issue or is that related also to musculoskeletal imbalances in that upper part of the body? Yeah, I would say it's a little bit of both. So a lot of times, like, that rounded posture of the thoracic spine can happen with things like osteoporosis. What happens at the same time as you start getting a rounded thoracic spine is this tightness through the pec major and the pec minor and even tightness in the lats. So if you have that kind of tightness in the front of your shoulders, then the muscles on the back of your shoulders, the rhomboids, get inhibited. So it's more difficult to engage them. So if you work with strengthening the rhomboids and stretching the pecs, then you'll get more openness in the shoulder joint, but you're also going to help decrease that rounding of the thoracic spine. Very interesting. Now, Melissa, you have already offered a course on Yoga U on musculoskeletal imbalances as they apply to the lower body, and you will be offering a course on musculoskeletal imbalances for the upper body. Would you mind telling us a little more about what specifically you will be covering in the course? Yeah, so we're going to be looking at, in the first webinar, really understanding where these muscles are in the body. So understanding the origin, the insertion, the action, how weakness or tightness in these muscles show up in different yoga asana and how to do yoga asana to facilitate balance in these muscles. There'll be a practice, and the practice is focused on working with lengthening the muscles that are typically tight or short, and also strengthening the muscles that are typically inhibited or weak. And then in the second one, we'll talk about sequencing, modifications, how to work with specific imbalances in specific ways. The first webinar will also be talking about common diagnoses that people tend to come with of the upper body and how these imbalances relate to those diagnoses. So is this something that would be useful for people to, you know, certainly prevent injuries in their yoga practice, but is it also something that can have a preventive effect towards sort of the common age-related issues that people tend to develop as they get older? It will help you understand how the shoulder works most optimally to help heal from injury, to help prevent injury, but also to maintain balance so that you prevent the common injuries that happen. That's great. Well, Melissa, thank you so much. It sounds like an absolutely amazing and very fascinating course. You are such an adept, both physical therapist and yoga therapist that combines both this great anatomical knowledge with, you know, some really wonderful insights into the biomechanics of practice, but also the deeper, subtler level of our practice. So we really very much look forward to having you join us for the course. Thank you. I am looking forward to being there and offering it. Great. And everyone listening in, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you can join us for Melissa's course.